At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is Asked and Answered. Questions. With Tom Opferman and Steelers Digest editor Bob Labriola. The NFL draft is still fresh in everybody's minds and labs. Before we get to the questions from Steelers Nation, I have some questions for you, my man. I want to talk some NFL draft, and I really just want to start by hearing your general thoughts on how the Steelers did because i got to be honest with you, locally, nationally, I cannot find a single person to say a negative thing about the Steelers draft, and it has me doing backflips. What say you? Uh, Well, you know, just let me kind of – Piggyback on what you just said about the um, the overwhelmingly positive yeah. uh, feedback. You know, usually, um, regardless of whether it's good or not, you know, you get some people who are whining and complaining about <laughs> something, but it just doesn't, you know, seem to be any of that. And you know, the the draft, this particular class, I mean, there weren't a lot of what I would refer to as sexy picks. You know, not by that I would mean like. La- the 2022 draft, you know, you pick a quarterback number one. Right. You pick a Georgia receiver who um, was doing spectacular things in the national championship game, you know, um, and those kinds of picks where there's a lot of highlights. Now you're picking, you know, linemen on both sides of the ball and, um, you know, that kind of thing. A shutdown corner that necess- never gets thrown at in college, so there's not really that many highlights. Right. Um <laughs> You know, that kind of stuff. So, um, okay, let, let, my general impressions. Uh, you know, um, I, I, I think that what, they, what the Steelers did, um, you know, we're going to find out how successful it is or was, uh, but it, to me it was necessary. Um, you know, if you look at this team in its recent past, there was a season where they finished last in the NFL in rushing another season when they finished last in the NFL in run defense. And those are um, statistics or, uh, you know, uh, rankings that indicate that your team is getting handled on the line of scrimmage, both on offense and defense. And, you know, that's unacceptable. That's embarrassing. You can't win that way in the NFL uh, for that to be happening on a regular basis. And so what the Steelers did was, you know, they went out and I believe um, 
with the idea that, you know, we don't want that to happen anymore. And, you know, it, it kind of culminated with the draft, but it began with free agency, you know, with those offensive linemen right. that they picked. They set the tone then. Right. Resigned in Ogunjobi. Um, so, um, you know, that, that to me was significant. And the one thing that uh, came out of it <laughs> that really kind of brought it home for me was uh, Keanu Benton in his um, conference call with the media. He's asked about what kind of um, message maybe he got from Mike Tomlin about um, the team wanting to add bigger, stronger people on lines of scrimmage. <laughs> Benton, in a moment of um, the way the Steelers would probably look at it, unnecessary honesty, said that. <laughs> Some rookie inexperience yeah, uh, here. <laughs> right. Something about, you know, Mike Tomlin said he's, he wants some goons. <laughs> and, um, you know, then it was, it was extra funny when at the end of the draft, Omar and Mike Tomlin are doing their wrap-up press conference and someone asks him about what Benton said. <laughs> First of all, Mike Tomlin didn't deny it. He didn't try and like massage it or, you know, that's not what I meant or, you know what I mean? He just said, yeah, that's an accurate, uh, an accurate <laughs> statement. And, uh, but I'm going to have to talk to him about work with him on his media relations or something <laughs> so that he, he learns to keep our private conversations private. So, but anyway, yeah, they, they were looking to get, um, more physical, more relentless, um, you know, be, uh, that more of the kind of a team that isn't going to get pushed around anymore. And, you know, we're going to see how that works out. Now, it was Omar Khan's first time in the captain's chair, but I think it's important to remember that man has been in that war room for years and years. He's not a, a, exactly green when it comes to this, and I think that kind of showed here. He, he looked like a very experienced GM, despite it really being his first draft day. Well, uh, you know, I, I think Omar deserves uh, credit um, for the way that, let me, okay, let me, let me start it this way. One of the things that Dan Rooney always talked about was that, you know, you have to be careful with your, you know, your scouts and your personnel people, because sometimes they want to win the draft. And the idea is not to try to win the draft. The idea is to try to put together a team that, you know, can win a Super Bowl. And so, you know, I liked Omar's, um, understanding of when to go for it and when not. Uh, and and let, let me give you some examples of what I mean. Uh, the first round, he made a trade to um, get up and get Broderick Jones, who the Steelers had ranked in the uh, upper echelon of offensive linemen. And I think that you know he wasn't going to be long for that to being on the board. And if the Steelers had waited until 17, they don't get him. Right. Uh, and the, the price was a reasonable fourth round pick. Uh, you moved up and you got the guy that I won't say that they wanted, but one of the people I think that they had identified as being among the best prospects at a position of need. Okay. Uh, good job, Omar. Then the 32nd pick, they didn't make a deal, even though, you know, there was a lot of talk about, oh, this is going to be, there's going to be a bounty available for them in this, in this spot and what you can do and trade, trade, blah, blah, blah. Okay. 
Now, you know, the thing to me is, is that sometimes you look at the situation and maybe the offers that they were getting for the pick weren't worth passing up Joey Porter Jr., who was, by all estimation, recognized and graded as a first-round talent at outside cornerback, which is another position of need. And universally recognized as best player left on the board going into day two. Well, uh, certainly for the Steelers. Maybe this Will Levis was better. Okay, fair. Yeah, that's fair, depending on your need, for sure. Right. Um, So, you know, instead of, um, you know, trying to get all kind of kudos from the people on the the studio sets at NFL Network (laughs) and ESPN for, wow, what a great move, you know, Omar the Dealmaker and, you know, all that other kind of stuff, um, Con artist, I, I love. That I love one. the con artist. <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> um, but you know, you don't. Sometimes discretion is the better form of value. You don't make that trade. Okay. Then the other one that I really liked was uh, the move down thirteen spots in the third round to get a fourth round pick yeah. back. Because without that, you know, that pick turns into you know Nate Herbig. Nate. So that's that's his name. Yeah, right? Nate. His first name. Yeah, yeah okay. I, you know, I, I still got to learn all the brothers. You know, it's they they always hit me with these. Um, oh, you know what? No, brothers. the younger brother's Nick. It's Nick Herbig that Nick. we drafted. Okay, yes, see? Nate is the older yeah. brother. Big bro, Nate. Okay, we're both yeah. wrong. There's too many brothers <laughs> on this team, Labs. I mean, how can you keep track? <laughs> uh, and that you know, they at least should do the right thing and not have first names to begin with the same letter. You know. <laughs> and are both four letters long. I mean, seriously, Herbert right. family. Help us um, out here. But anyway, you know, and they ended up getting the guy that they were going to pick anyway, Darnell Washington. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's that that's a g- good move um, for, you know, even though it was slightly inconvenient for those of us who were covering the draft on – um, Saturday in that, um, you know, we had to sit around all that time, you know, because I was thinking, well, with no fourth round pick, you only got two picks in the seventh round. This is very selfish, by the way, too. I'm, I'm admitting. This I was right days. there with you though. In the selfish thought. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you, you have nothing to do to like four or five o'clock in the afternoon, maybe, <laughs> you know, go somewhere and have a nice brunch. But, um, the Steelers had a fourth-round pick, and they used it, I thought, intelligently and added a guy, I think, who can uh, certainly compete uh, for a role that's going to, you know, me- hopefully make the team better. So, uh, yeah, I like the fact, you know, that it's <clears throat> while you want to be aggressive and you want to have an impact, um, you don't want to just overdo it. Uh, you know, and just try and trade all the time. Right. So sometimes the right move is to make a trade. Sometimes the right move is not to make a trade and just sit and do the conservative thing and make the pick. Uh, and I thought that the, the Steelers, Omar Khan, had a very good handle on, um, you know, when to read the coverage, you know, when to, when to force the ball <laughs> down the field and when to check it down and just, you know, take the easy game. And so, um, you know, kudos to him for having that ability to, you know, read the coverage. 
uh, to use, you know, more on the field football terms. Well, once the draft concluded, Omar sat down with us on SNR and we asked him, you know, now that this is over, what's next? What areas do you still think that are of need for the Steelers? And he didn't really go into specifics, but he just let you know, you know, there's still a lot of work left to be done. So, Labs, what areas of need do you still think are out there after the draft? Well, I mean, you got to there's only three quarterbacks on the roster. So yes. there, there has to be something done there. Um, I think that maybe uh, it's, it would come from the tryout um, rookie mini camp slash tryout camp that they're going to have that starts uh, May 12th. Um, because, you know, one of the things that people need to understand is rookie mini camp. For example, Kenny Pickett's not allowed to participate. Right. So there's a lot of, you know, players who, you know, even guys, you know, futures contracts, you know, all those kinds of guys, they're not eligible for that. And so the team a lot of times has to, and that's why they allow tryouts that don't count on the roster. Because right now the Steelers have 86 players uh, plus their seven draft picks, which do not yet count on the roster until they're signed. So they're, they're over the limit. I mean, they can add people to the roster, but then you're going to have to cut people. Right. So people need to understand that, too. There is a roster limit that uh, must be adhered to throughout, you know, the offseason. And so, but tryout people are don't count unless you sign them. So, you know, you can bring a couple of quarterbacks in addition to the undrafted rookie that they signed <clears throat> right after the draft. He's the only quarterback you have. And one isn't enough. You know, you, just to run a practice, right. um, you need more than one. So I, I think that, you know, we'll, we'll see something there. Uh, another area, you know, that I you could maybe point to um, and say, you know, they need to do something there is inside linebacker. Now, but let me say this. I don't really know yet what the plan is in terms of how, you know, Terrell Austin – Mike Tomlin, um, Grady Brown are going to uh, kind of put together this defense. Um, you know, th- they signed the two unrestricted free agents, uh, Landon Roberts and um, Cole Holcomb. Okay, now you also signed Keon O'Neill, who was, um, by definition, I guess, you could call it a in-the-box safety. Now, does that translate into maybe some sort of hybrid role for him? Uh, And he becomes maybe part of the inside linebacker rotation slash mix. You have Mark Robinson, last year's seventh-round draft pick. He's another guy who can't participate in rookie rookie So, um, but anyway, you know, I don't know really know what the Steelers have specifically in mind in terms of how they're going to have the divisions of labor at that area. So what might look like now and uh, a situation, a position where you need to add people, maybe you really don't because I'm sure that there have been discussions between, you know, the scouts and the personnel department and preliminary discussions with the coaches in terms of, well, we look at these guys as helping us in this area as well, you know, that kind of thing. So um, quarterback for sure, maybe inside linebacker, maybe not. Well, speaking of quarterback, before we get to our questions for today, 
You know, we're nothing without accountability on this podcast, Labs. And you and I both last week thought they would probably take a quarterback late in this draft. They ended up not doing that. I know they signed Tanner Morgan, like you mentioned, but were you a little surprised that you didn't see a quarterback go in the seventh round with one of those two picks? Well, as soon as Max Dugan got picked. You thought that was your last guy. Well, I thought that was a guy that that had a real uh, shot to be picked. Um, So once that happened and they took him, someone else took him, um, that kind of, you know, threw the, threw the uh, wet blanket over that idea in my mind. Um, and I didn't want him to just pick one, right. just to pick one at that point. So uh, once once Max Dugan was picked by some other team, and I forget who it was right now. The Chargers. Uh, that kind of, oh, that's right, it was the Chargers. That kind of ended the quarterback thing for me. And I was actually hoping that, you know, um, you'd forget about it and you wouldn't bring it up. So I wouldn't have, we have to, to be accountable you. labs. We have to be accountable okay. uh, all right. or at least pretend to be. All right. Let's get to our questions <laughs> this week. Our first one comes from Michael Kolb in Suwannee, Georgia. And he wants to know when I was a teenager in the late 1960s, I was fortunate enough to work in a store that was frequented by a number of Steelers. When Chuck Knoll was hired, I recall newspaper coverage of his plans to implement a tough training regimen. When I asked one of the team's offensive linemen about it at the time, he sort of laughed it off. It got me to wondering, how much roster turnover was there in Noel's first year? Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, relate a story that Andy Russell frequently told. And Andy Russell was um, a Pro Bowl player uh, right before Chuck Noll was hired. So he, I guess you could ar- make the case he was arguably the best player on the team that Chuck Noll inherited in January 1969, and Andy Russell always told the story of the first meeting that Noel had with the entire team, and he said something to the effect of, you know, our goal is to win the Super Bowl, but most of you aren't good enough to be here when we oh. do. <laughs> so, Ouch. Um, so even in, the, in that era, it was not easy or simple for a team to remake its roster in, in a single offseason. And so, you know, it took, a pro, it took some time. Uh, for that to happen, so there were losing seas. There were the Steelers were one in thirteen in sixty nine, five and nine in nineteen seventy, six and eight in nineteen seventy one. Before they posted, you know, the eleven and three record in nineteen seventy two, the first division championship in franchise history, and then they beat Oakland uh, in the Immaculate Reception game. So okay, when you look at the difference between the team Noel inherited in nineteen sixty nine and the 1972 roster, okay, of the 50 players who spent at least some time on the Steelers roster during the 1968 season, which means, you know, going into Knowles' um, first year, only eight of them were still made it as far as 1972. (laughs) And here's the eight. Rocky Blyer, uh, offensive tackle John Brown, guard Sam Davis, center Ray Mansfield, Defensive tackle Ben McGee, Andy Russell, guard Bruce Van Dyke, and punter Bobby Walden. So, a lot of turnover. Ken Malden from Clyde, Texas asks, I really appreciated Joe Hayden while he was here. It seems like his career, a very good one, sure came to to a quiet ending. I know he was a salary cap casualty with the Browns, but how many teams had a chance to pick him up before the Steelers nabbed him? Did he have to clear waivers? Okay, when 
Um, Joe Hayden was uh, waived, released by the Browns in August 2017. He was a vested veteran, and so he was not subject to waivers. Uh, the Steelers signed him the day after the Browns cut him. Uh, and this is kind of what happened in that, in that time frame. Okay, there were rumors circulating that the Browns at the time were looking for Joe Hayden to take a pay cut. Hayden was making $11.1 million. Uh, he was owed uh, for 2017. Uh, that was on his contract that was then to pay him in the neighborhood of $21.5 million for the following two seasons, 2018 and 2019. So, Joe Hayden was represented by Drew Rosenhaus, who is, um, you know, some teams love him, some teams hate him. <laughs> uh, the Steelers have a good business relationship with him. Uh, why, I don't know, um, but they do. And so, um, you know, once the Browns wanted Hayden to take a pay cut, Rosenhaus uh, kind of took over and... Um, got him cut because they, they, um, Rosenhaus's advice to Hayden was, we're not doing that. So Hayden refused the pay cut. And so the Browns then either had to pay him or cut him. And so they cut him, uh, 24 hours later, he was in the Steelers <laughs> team locker room in Carolina because the Steelers played their preseason finale. Um, the day after Hayden was cut. And, um, you know, he, he signed right then. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I believe that, you know, Marquise Pouncey, who was um, a fairly significant player on those Steelers teams in that era, who played with Aiden in college, um, was a big part of the recruiting process. And, um, you know, I think playing for Mike Tomlin was something that Joe Hayden was interested in. Uh, stay getting to stay in the AFC North was something that he was probably interested in because then he get to play against his uh, former team twice a year, and um, so that that's how that kind of worked out. He was not subject to waivers, and he just chose to sign with the Steelers. Seems about as stress free as getting cut by a team can be, is what Joe Hayden went through there. I mean, just two hours later, he's in Pittsburgh. It doesn't get much better than yeah. that. Well, actually, he was in Charlotte. Oh, yes, excuse me. So the game me. was on the road. Yeah, the game was on the road. And I remember, um, you know, being in that hotel, and um, I got the chance to talk to, you know, Kevin Colbert and uh, Mike Tomlin about it to write something for the website. Right. And uh, the whole area where the team was, because, you know, the, the meeting rooms and where they, they eat and all that stuff is usually in one area of the hotel. And it was a very festive um, atmosphere down there because, uh, you know, you're adding a, a guy who was a first-team all-pro cornerback in the league. And, you know, those kind of guys don't grow on trees for sure. Jeffrey Miles from Middletown, Connecticut. I was debating some recent Steelers draft picks in a football group. The discussion turned to Devin Bush. And while I think he didn't pan out, I also felt he showed great promise as a rookie. In that discussion, somebody said he only had 89 tackles as a rookie, while I argued he had 109. ESPN.com and ProFootballReference.com list him with 109, but NFL.com shows 89. We are wondering which number, if either, is correct. Um, okay, uh, Jeffrey's uh, assessment, or um, the way he's explaining this, 
in the disparity of total tackles credited to Devin Bush during his rookie season, uh, that's accurate. And those numbers that he had there are the ones that are reflected on those respective uh, websites. My, uh, my opinion is that when it comes to tackle stats, um, nobody's right. Uh, they're just <laughs> not. Well, they, you know, they're not recognized. Tackle statistics are not really recognized by the NFL. That's why you'll never see them. You know, you'd see a lot of statistics that the league puts out every week, but tackle statistics are not among them. That's because true. the way it works is tackle stats are compiled on site by the home team's <clears throat> stats crew at every regular season games. Every regular season game. Okay. So, um, you know, it, it, there's nothing official about them in a lot of cases. And here's my favorite example of this. Um, you look up Ray Lewis. He played 228 career regular season games, and he's credited with 2,059 tackles. Okay, that works out to an average of 9.03 <laughs> tackles per game. <clears throat> now, you know, Ray Lewis is in the Hall of Fame. He deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm not arguing that, you know, he's a great player, was a great player. But that's a lot of tackles per game, <clears throat> okay? Because here's a few factors that impact that. The Ravens' defense in that area, era wasn't on the field for a lot of plays, okay? So um, how many how – many, in those 228 career games, how often was the Ravens' defense? How many snaps, you know, did Ray Lewis have? Okay? And here's another factor. There were a lot of other really good players on those units. You know, um, Siragusa yeah. and um, Trevor Price and Ed Reed. Yeah. And, you know, and all those guys were making plays too. Okay? So it's not like Ray Lewis had to make every tackle. But – you know, that's what I'm saying. So that seems to me to be an awfully high number uh, for that number of career games in the circumstances that I've just described. And so that's why I don't trust any of tackle stats. And so um, all I can tell you, Jeffrey, is I wouldn't get too worried about it because I would doubt that either of those, any of those websites that you cited or figures that you have uh, we're able to get are, as you would say, correct. And our final question today comes from Bill McNeely from Absaroki, Montana. Can you help me understand how the game has changed? Because it seems like quarterbacks threw far more interceptions in the 1970s and 1980s than in today's game. I love Terry Bradshaw, but his career stats were 212 touchdowns and 210 interceptions. Those numbers would get him benched in today's NFL and Mike Wagner had more career interceptions than Troy Polamalu, 36 to 32. Um, okay, when it comes to the game, uh, the, the, the way the sport was played in the 70s and 80s to today, everything has changed. Um, for example, you know, the West Coast offense, Bill Walsh's creation, didn't really become popular in the league until the 80s. Okay, and until then, when it was time to throw the ball, uh, NFL teams threw the ball down the field. Uh, they weren't relying on rhythm passing where receivers ran quick, quick routes and quarterbacks threw the ball towards the sideline. And that 
that um, philosophy, that um, offense cut down on the time the quarterback had to hold on to the ball, okay? So if he's getting rid of the ball quick, that makes it more difficult for the defense to generate a pass rush. Also, in the 70s and 80s, defenses could hit quarterbacks. You know, you could, <laughs> they could do more was, than hit them. Well, well, I mean, I think there was like a step and a half rule or whatever it was after the quarterback released the ball. Step and a half. And so, <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, just start thinking about that. So now, you know, quarterbacks are, and I'm not saying they were soft or anything, but, uh, you know, it was much more violent. And so, you know, they're either – they're one of the things that Dick LeBeau always believed when it came to pressure was he said sometimes it's better to make the quarterback sense pressure than actually generate pressure yeah. on him because then he will throw the ball and make mistakes with it. That's how you generate interceptions. So, you know, quarterbacks were doing that too. They're fighting to survive back there. And so they've, they're thinking, I'm getting rid of this. <laughs> you know, they're putting the ball up. It's like it's intercepted more. They're getting hit more. And then finally, let's not forget the Mel Blunt rule because in the 70s, uh, at least until the end of the decade, uh, defensive backs were allowed to put their hands on receivers and not specifically hold them, but you could play physically with them until the ball was in the air. Okay, now any kind of contact beyond five yards of the line of scrimmage is a flag. So there's a lot of different things that have happened in terms of, you know, the player safety initiative, um, the rules changes. Oh, here's another one. Uh, before the Mel Blunt rule, one of the um, side rules that went in as well, you know, offensive linemen were then allowed to extend their hands uh, in pass protection and punch, you know, the way Tunch Ilkin used to play. You couldn't do that before. That was holding. Well, that was illegal. You know, you as an offensive lineman, pass blocking in the 70s before the Mel Blunt rule, you were almost like a, a baseball catcher. You know, all you were doing was <laughs> just kind of absorbing whatever the defense was doing, and you just tried to kind of get in their way a little bit. You couldn't, you couldn't really attack them. You couldn't, you know, punch them to keep them off you, use your hands, those kind of things. That was all illegal. So before all of that stuff became uh, was legislated into the game, it was not easy to either pass block or be a quarterback and stand in there and take that abuse or be a wide receiver and get away from people like Mel Blunt. And so that's why, um, you know, Bradshaw's stats were not as gaudy uh, as some of the other quarterbacks. That's why Mike Wagner had a lot more interceptions than Troy Polamalu because, you know, quarterbacks were putting the ball up. And uh, it was floating around a lot of times in the in the secondary. So a lot of things have changed to and that um, to impact the statistics that uh, Bill is referring to. Well, the NFL draft might be in the books, but the offseason marches forward for the NFL. A little birdie told me, and that little birdie is the NFL Network, that we can expect the schedule released next Thursday. Labs, the NFL just never sleeps, does it? It dominates 365 days a year. Well, did, and um, I'm sure you you saw the uh, the ratings. Oh, for the draft! Oh my God, fifty 
54 million fans watched the NFL draft on TV and digital over three days. Yeah, it's not like other sports 50... were deciding playoff games either during that. So, Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, personally, there was a few times when I was flipping over to watch the Warriors and the Sacramento Kings um, in the NBA playoffs rather than listen to um, <laughs> Daniel Jeremiah just drone on about sixth-round picks or whatever it was at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, um, the NFL dominates and they, one of the things that Roger Goodell has done, a lot of criticism, uh, for Roger and a lot of it he deserves, but, uh, the NFL has taken over Yes. Uh, this, the off season. I mean, it's, and they spread it out. You know, there's the, uh, the combine on TV pro days were on TV. Then you have the draft on TV. The schedule thing, that's another it's non-event. It's a major TV per- event now. Major oh. TV event. And, you know, and they do it like, um, you know, the Academy Awards, yes. too, Con. I mean, you have to wait for the <laughs> reveal. And, you know, I wonder if they have a red carpet for the schedule, like Who's too, on who Monday knows, night? Dun, 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 yeah, right. dun, dun, dun. Welcome the Bengals and the Bills. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you what, I'll be watching. You know, you you want to know what it is. And um, you know, got to give them credit. 54, 54.4 million fans watched the draft. Um, wow. Wow is all I can say. The NFL is certainly king. Thanks for listening to Asked and Answered this week. We always have a lot of fun. Get your questions in now for Labs, and we'll be back again with a fresh edition of Asked and Answered. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the land of saints and sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, watch it now on digital, rated R. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.